Hello and welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 8th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile, and I'm happy to welcome you to this week's edition of the program, which is used each Friday and features commentary from California practitioners, jurists, and academics regarding salient appellate issues. Today our guests will offer commentary on three important cases, two are opinions filed recently, the other case is a Ninth Circuit appeal that heard its oral arguments this week. Of the filed opinions, one issued from the U.S. Supreme Court in regards to the Fourth Amendment and the exclusionary rule. The other was an employment discrimination case filed in California's Fourth Appellate District. The Ninth Circuit case considers the L.A. Sheriff's Department's mishandling of a jail inmate the department discovered to be an FBI informant. First, Professor Jeffrey Fisher, co-director of Stanford Law's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, will visit to chat about the Supreme Court ruling in the case of Utah v. Streif, which issued in late June. There, local police officers in South Salt Lake City had been surveilling a house that an anonymous tip had suggested was a hotspot for drug activity. Anxious to advance the department's case, a police officer stopped Edward Streif when he exited the house. Though the officer, the prosecution in the case admitted, lacked requisite probable cause for the stop. During the stop, though, the officer discovered that Streif had an outstanding warrant arising from a minor traffic violation. The officer arrested Streif and, in a customary search incident to the arrest, discovered drugs on Streif's person. Streif moved to exclude the evidence, arguing it was fruit of the poisonous tree since the original stop had been unconstitutional. The Utah Supreme Court agreed with Streif, but the U.S. High Court, in a 5-3 ruling, felt differently holding that the warrant discovery created enough of an attenuation between the unconstitutional stop and the drugs being found. In a blistering dissent, though, Justice Sotomayor warned that the court's ruling essentially gives the police the green light to make unjustified stops, particularly the justices of minority individuals, and cross their fingers that the stopped party has an outstanding warrant. Professor Fisher will consider Justice Sotomayor's concern and whether this opinion has meaningfully weakened the exclusionary rule. Next, former L.A. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Winnico will offer insight about a recent employment law ruling, Moore versus the Regents of the University of California, which filed out of the 4th Appellate District and which stands to have significant impact at the summary judgment stage of employment discrimination matters. The plaintiff in that case developed a slight heart condition that her complaint alleges in no way interfered with her ability to perform work tasks. But her supervisor expressed concern, began paring down the plaintiff's job duties, and eventually terminated the plaintiff. The trial court granted the defense summary judgment, but the appellate court reversed, noting that tribal issues of fact remained. Judge Winnico will describe how and why this ruling will almost certainly be in the briefs of every plaintiff employment lawyer in similar cases moving forward. Finally, David Gamble from Garagos and Garagos will offer insight on oral arguments in the Ninth Circuit appeal in U.S. v. Gerard Smith et al. There, several sheriff's deputies were convicted at trial court of conspiring to obstruct an FBI investigation by helping to hide a jail inmate that had been assisting a federal investigation into potential civil rights abuses affecting the L.A. County Jail where the informant was housed. The case poses interesting issues as to culpability and whether the deputies possessed a sufficiently corrupt mental state to be convicted of the charges, considering that many claim they were simply following orders they deemed to be lawful. And before hearing from our guests, let me first remind you that CLE credit is available for your having listened to this show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Professor Fisher. Very delighted to welcome in now Professor Jeffrey Fisher from Stanford Law School, where he is there a professor of law and the co-director of the school's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic, and himself a veteran of the U.S. Supreme Court, arguing some 28 cases before the justices there. Professor Fisher, thanks very much for being on the podcast. My pleasure. So we're talking about Utah versus Streif here, a case filed in the, the second to last week of the October 2015 term. And... The underlying facts here, there's a house in South Salt Lake City that, based on an anonymous tip, is being surveilled by a narcotics detective. And from that house emerges a man named Edward Streif. Can you tell me what happens next? 
well, before I get to what happens next, it's pro- probably useful to say a couple more words about what happened beforehand, which is that the, uh, the police department had received an anonymous tip uh, that there was drug dealing going on in the house. And the officer that you mentioned had been watching the house periodically, but hadn't learned very much. So the officer decided that he was going to stop the next person who left the house uh, to try to see if he could learn some more. Uh, and as you suggested, that uh, I guess unlucky person was Mr. Streif. Uh, so we saw Mr. Streif leave and followed him to down the block to a convenience store uh, where he uh, intercepted him um, and kind of demanded to ask him some questions. Uh, and in the course of doing that, he actually got Mr. Streif's um, license so he could run a check for any outstanding warrants uh, for his arrest. And so when that check came back, the officer learned that he indeed did have an outstanding warrant, uh, which was for an underlying unpaid traffic ticket. Uh, but that in and of itself provided reason to arrest Mr. Streif. Uh, he then arrested him and conducted the customary uh, pat-down of the person to make sure there were no sharp objects or the like, uh, and discovered a, a bag of drugs. And so uh, that discovery led to uh, Mr. Streif's prosecution on drug charges. Exactly, yeah. So then he's in court and, and moves to suppress that evidence found on him, the drugs, based on um, the, the fruit of the poisonous tree doctor and the, the exclusionary rule can you remind me, the exclusionary rule should, it just keeps evidence out that is obtained um, in contravention of the, the Constitution. Is that roughly the, what it does? That's right. The exclusionary rule, which uh, has existed under federal law for over a century and has applied to the states since the 60s, uh, says that if police officers violate the Fourth Amendment, as a general rule, uh, evidence that they obtain through that illegal search or seizure cannot be introduced in a criminal case uh, against uh, the person. Um, and so that's what uh, Mr. Streif argued, because as the state later conceded, uh, the officer did not have the sufficient level of suspicion uh, to seize Mr. Streif uh, in the convenience store uh, where this whole thing began. Then let's get to the U.S. Supreme Court opinion, and specifically as it relates to that last point you make, that there was not sufficient reasonable suspicion for the initial stop. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court did not quibble with that finding that the the Utah court made. They assumed, although they said they did not decide, that there wasn't reasonable suspicion. Why do you think the court didn't try to make the argument that there was? I mean, obviously here there wasn't much. There was an anonymous tip, and then I believe some frequent comers and goers to to the home, um, not much for reasonable suspicion, but it seems like sometimes the court in the past has, you know, if it has really wanted to, has been able to say, yeah, this is enough for, for a stop. Well, it would have been very surprising for the court to delve into that here for a couple of reasons. One is because um, actually the state itself uh, was conceding that it didn't have, that the officer didn't have reasonable suspicion. As the state put it in its brief, the officer was, quote, just shy of reasonable suspicion. Uh, but the but the state never argued in the U.S. Supreme Court or even in the lower courts that the officer had the requisite level of suspicion. Uh, and so the whole case had been handled in the lower courts on the that on the basis of that concession, um, and the Utah courts had decided this case solely on the question of whether the exclusion rule applied, not the Fourth Amendment. So you're right, the U.S. Supreme Court obviously has the power to reach out and decide other issues uh, when it decides it wants to, but in a situation like this, it would have been very surprising, and instead what the court prefers to do usually is decide the case on the same grounds uh, that were argued below. Okay. Then why, in the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion, should the exclusionary rule not keep out these found drugs, the seized evidence? So what the majority says in a uh, five to three opinion written by Justice Thomas for the majority, uh, the court applies what's known as the attenuation doctrine. As I said earlier, the exclusionary rule is just a general rule. It's not a categorical principle. And the court has said over the years that if, if in one form or another, if the um, if the cost of suppressing the evidence uh, would outweigh the societal benefit, then uh, the court won't necessarily apply the exclusionary rule. And in particular, there's a strand of that case law called the attenuation doctrine, where the court says that if the uh, discovery of the evidence is uh, uh, quite attenuated to the initial illegality, uh, then suppression is inappropriate. So the court looked to its prior attenuation case law and applied that test and held that 
the evidence was sufficiently attenuated to the illegality uh, such that the exclusionary rule shouldn't apply. I'm happy to delve further into that, but that's the high-level answer. Sure, and attenuated specifically by the finding of the outstanding warrant, certainly not temporarily attenuated by very much. I mean, it was stopped, the warrant was looked up, and, and then the search was initiated. So the Temporarily, there's not a whole lot of attenuation. It seems to me, and obviously to the dissenting justices here, that this is a rather broad construal of the attenuation doctrine as it stood. Well, the court has looked at attenuation in two different ways. Uh, One, as you said, is a temporal question. Uh, And as the majority conceded, the temporal proximity here was quite tight. Uh, So that did not give a basis for suspending the exclusionary rule. Uh, On the other hand, the court has looked at so-called intervening circumstances. Uh, And that's really what the state argued here and what Justice Thomas and the majority agreed with, uh, is that the intervening discovery of the warrant, uh, which the court stressed, was done really in the ordinary course of the officer's duties, um, not um, not as some kind of pretext or subterfuge to try to retroactively, you know, cleanse an illegal stop, uh, or as some some sort of reason to go on a fishing expedition for whatever might be in Mr. Street's pockets, uh, but rather it was just ordinary police protocol with an officer who the court seemed to think, um, in his own mind, had conducted a legal stop in the first place. So given that sort of good faith mistake, as Justice Thomas called it, uh, the intervening circumstance of the warrant uh, was enough to to allow the, the evidence's introduction. Okay, um, maybe before we move on to, to the dissents here, I'd like to mention one other thing about the majority opinion, and that, that it, that's that it includes Justice Breyer, which seemed to me at least to be a bit of a surprise. He's a pretty reliable member of the court's liberal cohort and has expressly defended criminal um, defendants' rights in a number of areas, most recently with regard to the death penalty. Were you surprised to see him in this majority? Well, yes and no. Um, uh, I think I'd quibble a little bit with the way you described Justice Breyer. Like a lot of the justices, you can't paint with such a broad brush in terms of saying they're pro-criminal defendant or against uh, or something like that. Uh, Justice Breyer has been on the more conservative side of the court when it's come to Fourth Amendment issues uh, quite a bit over the years. So again, just to show you can't draw with a broad brush, Justice Scalia, who many people think of as a, you know, great conservative uh, on the court was often siding with criminal defendants in cases where Justice Breyer was siding with the government. And so um, it's not terribly surprising to see Justice Breyer leaning toward the the prosecution side of a Fourth Amendment case. Having said that, he had, uh, he's certainly not dogmatic in that respect and had um, certainly ruled for defendants in, in Fourth Amendment cases here and there. And probably the most uh, salient example is Herring against the United States, uh, which I should say was a case out of my clinic. But about five years ago, um, the court held the exclusionary rule did not apply to uh, an illegal stop based on a warrant where it turned out the officer um, had not been told that the warrant had been recalled. Uh, And in that case, Justice Breyer actually wrote the dissent for the more liberal justices saying that if the police uh, themselves make a mistake that results in a Fourth Amendment violation, um, you shouldn't suspend the exclusionary rule. So based on his vote in Herring, it is somewhat noteworthy that he uh, ended up on the other side of this case. He's the the only justice, you might say, who switched sides in this case. Has this opinion substantially weakened the exclusionary rule, in your opinion? To hear the majority tell it, this is simply a rote application of the existing doctrine, no more, no less. But do you feel like it has um, significantly compromised or compromised to some extent the exclusionary rule? Well, like a lot of Supreme Court opinions, I think the answer to that is going to remain to be seen. Um, And there's two particular things that I think are worth watching in this case. Uh, One is the court goes out of its way to stress that not only was the discovery of the warrant an attenuating, I'm sorry, an intervening circumstance, but also nothing about the officer's actions was flagrant or showed a purpose to conduct a stop just to see if he could find a warrant to justify a search. Um, and the court kind of implicitly distinguished um, 
statistics uh, that the defendant had brought to bear from other jurisdictions, most notably Ferguson, Missouri, where there was an incredibly high rate of adults having outstanding warrants. In Ferguson, it was like 70, 76% of, a, of adults have an outstanding warrant. Uh, in Cincinnati, it's almost 40%, and there are other statistics like that. And the court finishes its opinion by saying, in, Salt, in South Salt Lake City, we're aware of no such you know, predominant uh, practice of conducting stops uh, with you know for no for no legitimate reason with the hope that the warrant will somehow cleanse an illegal stop. Uh, so we'll have to see um, if cases like this start to flood courts in local areas where evidence shows or just judges are aware that um, uh, that this is a bigger problem than the court treated it to be in Utah. Uh, then you know, then the impact of this case will be quite limited to just jurisdictions where officers are just making nothing more than good faith mistakes. Um, the other thread that's worth watching is just more generally the flagrancy um, analysis the court uses. Uh, so if the court were to say in future cases that that the exclusionary rule is limited in all circumstances to situations where officers um, make good faith mistakes, regardless of any intervening circumstances, then that again would be a very dramatic change in exclusionary rule jurisprudence. Um, but in this case, uh, like in the Herring case before, the court has said not just that the officer didn't act in any flagrant or reckless manner, uh, but also that other circumstances like the intervening discovery of the warrant here um, required uh, suspension of the exclusionary rule. So as long as cases like these are tied to an important additional fact, then again, they may not be uh, quite so quite so far-reaching. Sure. Let's jump into Justice Sotomayor's dissent for just a minute and ignore at the outset the content of it and just focus on, on its tenor. It seems to be one of the more scathing dissents I've read in certainly a, a little while. Is this one of the more scathing dissents you've seen from the U.S. Supreme Court? Well... <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I guess it would be the second time I mentioned Justice Scalia. As many listeners would know, Justice Scalia was quite famous for, for quite biting and scathing dissents. And I don't think this is anywhere near that ballpark. Um, setting him aside, you know, it is one of the more strident dissents, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, so it has the, it's on the more, the more vociferous side of the spectrum, but I wouldn't say it's um, over the top compared to what some other justices have said over the last couple of years when they've been particularly distressed to, in a majority opinion. Dealing with its substance, what are Justice Sotomayor's principal concerns with this ruling? Well, I think that she has two sets of concerns, and um, one is that I think she just believes that the attenuation doctrine uh, shouldn't apply uh, in this circumstance because the temporal proximity is so incredibly tight. Um, and the discovery of a warrant is not, even if it is something new, it is not something necessarily that's terribly surprising uh, because, as I said, in certain communities, it's almost more likely than not. Uh, but in any case, it's something that naturally flows from a stop when an officer takes an idea and runs a warrant check. They should realize they're obviously going to come back with positive hits some of the time. So uh, the first part of her dissent is really kind of a straightforward application of the doctrine where she just reaches a different conclusion than the majority. Um, the more interesting part of the dissent, at least from a court watcher perspective, uh, and maybe one that will be remarked on more in law school classrooms and um, even maybe even the history books is the last part of her dissent written only for herself, uh, where she says, based on her, quote, professional experience, unquote, uh, the majority decision in this case could have really, really horrible effects for particularly people of color and low-income communities where, where she has a lot of suspicion that police officers are going to uh, continually act in good faith and resist exploiting the potential uh, opportunity now to conduct stops um, with the hopes you'll find a warrant and then have uh, any evidence admissible. Uh, so she, in a way, is speaking in the first part of her dissent 
to the other members of the court. In the second part of her dissent, she's almost speaking more to the public and to the Black Lives Matter movement and to those who have gained increasing skepticism and worry about uh, policing, at least in certain parts of our country. Right. And that, that section four that in which she is alone, she mentioned, quote, that Edward Streif is not a citizen of a democracy, but the subject of a carceral state just waiting to be cataloged. Uh, do you think that concern overstates the circumstance at all? Oh, perhaps. Uh, I, 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 I'll leave it to her to to use the language that she wants to use. Uh, but I do think that she is expressing a valid concern of um, many people in the country that um, that police in certain areas of the country, at least, uh, don't necessarily uh, respect the rights of uh, minority members and low-income citizens as much as they should, uh, and expressing a concern that if the court uh, doesn't uh, hold their feet to the fire with the exclusionary rule, uh, that there'll be continued slippage. Sure. Okay, maybe just one last one. In, in both of the dissents here, there's a suggestion that already there are a lot of exceptions to the Fourth Amendment protections, and now this is sort of perhaps a, another one added to it. Do you feel like the Fourth Amendment protections have been meaningfully eroded? I suppose, as you say, uh, we'll kind of wait and see as to the effects of this particular case. But more generally, do you think it's as robust as it's been in the past? Well, remember, this case isn't doesn't give the police any more power to conduct any more uh, surveillance or stops than they had before it. All it does is on its face, at least, all it does is say, you know, if you in good faith uh, think what you're doing is okay, but it turns out it wasn't, we're not always going to suppress the evidence. Uh, and so if you take the opinion at face value and assume good faith of police officers, it shouldn't make any difference at all. It shouldn't move the needle at all. Um, the question is whether Justice Sotomayor has a better side of the argument where she says, well, part of what we need to do is not just uh, tell officers what the Fourth Amendment is, but uh, deprive them and, and law enforcement in general of the fruits of illegal searches to kind of create deterrence from uh, from erring on the side of illegality rather than erring on the side of um uh, respecting privacy. And so if Justice Sotomayor is right, then, you know, perhaps at the margins, there's some slippage here. But uh, one would one would hope, I think, no matter what side you're on, uh, that the Fourth Amendment uh, itself hasn't changed very much as a result of the opinion. It's just um, that certain criminal prosecutions are not going to be able to be brought. And I think if the court were shown, I mean, Justice Thomas says this at the end, that if the court were shown that in certain areas of the country, or even if things changed in South Salt Lake City, Utah, such that this became a real tool of law enforcement, the reliance on warrants and conducting uh, illegal and suspicionless stops um, to try to exploit this opinion, every indication is the court would not allow the evidence to come in. So it seems like this case on its own isn't going to dramatically change anything. Well, I think we'll leave it there and see if that's indeed the case. Professor Jeffrey Fisher, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for asking me. It was nice to be here. Thanks. Again, that was Professor Jeffrey Fisher from Stanford Law School, where he co-directs the school's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Next, we'll move to my conversation with former L.A. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Winnico. We welcome in now Jeffrey Winnico, a former Los Angeles Superior Court Judge and the past chair of the Los Angeles County Bar Labor and Employment Section. He now runs his own mediation shop, Winnico Mediation. He's practiced on both sides of employment law cases, defense, and plaintiff side, so he brings to bear a very comprehensive view uh, of cases such as this one. Judge Winnico, thanks very much for being on the podcast. And thank you for having me. So the case we're talking about today is Deborah Moore versus the Regents of the University of California. And now this, this ruling was published a couple of weeks back, but had been filed earlier than that. And before we get into the opinion, I'd like to linger a bit more on that fact. Uh, you'd mentioned to me in some preliminary conversations we had before this interview that where a party might seek to have an opinion such as is published, there can be a bit of a political minefield to navigate. Uh, what did you mean by that, and why is that the case? Well, the politics of seeking publication that I was referring to was back in my 
former life, before I was a judge, I oversaw the amicus committee for the California Employment Lawyers Association. That's an organized plaintiffs bar group dealing with employment cases. Employment cases, And one of the problems that frequently happens is you would see appellate authority that favored plaintiff side interests that you would want published. But most of the time, the plaintiff's lawyer didn't want it published because they liked staying under the radar except the appellate win and hopefully cash a check. Right? Here, this was a little different because the, it was not a function of amicus advocacy urging the appellate court to publish this decision, but it was the plaintiff's lawyers themselves that wanted it published. I used to try and dissuade the plaintiff's lawyers from seeking publication because I thought it was in their best interest and their client's best interest to keep the decision under the radar. The thought was a published decision is much more likely to trigger California Supreme Court review than an unpublished decision. But here, the Sarnoff and Sarnoff firm that handled the case at trial wanted to see it published because they thought it made for uh, good authority for the rest of the plaintiff's bar, especially cases against the region. So that was one of the political decisions. They needed to decide what's best for them and their clients, publication or staying kind of stealth. Like you mentioned, that does sort of seem to be the other side of that coin. Is that true? If you you do have these cases published and then they're reviewed and knocked down, obviously that wouldn't benefit your client nor others that would want to rely on the authority. But getting it published does at least allow others for at least the time being to, to rely correct. on the authority. It's, it's, correct. It's what's good for the community versus what's good for the individual. And it was asymmetrical in that the defense side very rarely had to grapple with the internal politics of seeking publication of a pro-defense oriented opinion. Generally, the organized employers bar wanted those decisions published, but it was not so obvious on the plaintiff side to have an organization seek publication of authority against the wishes of the organization's members. That's the political situation. Okay, then we'll we'll go ahead and get into the ruling. Here, Deborah Moore was an employee at the University of California, San Diego, in their marketing department, and she was diagnosed with idiopathic cardiomyopathy, Um, and I believe that diagnosis came after she had been an employee for a couple of years, and also around the same time that a new supervisor was hired in her department, and as a result of the diagnosis, Ms. Moore had to wear a uh, life vest, some sort of vest that monitored her heart rate and heart functioning. And around that time, she made her supervisor, Miss Kimberly Kennedy, aware of the diagnosis. And naturally, Miss Kennedy became aware of the vest that Moore wore. And starting then, and for the next several months, according to Miss Moore's complaint, her work duties, her assignments became fewer and fewer. Her role was whittled away and assignments were reapportioned to other employees. This, while Ms. Kennedy expressed some concern that uh, Ms. Moore would be unable to perform her job functions ably. Uh, Though as the complaint describes, Ms. Moore explained to the supervisor that the heart condition would have no impact on Ms. Moore's ability to do her job. So there seems to have been some conflict between the two parties. Within a few more months, Ms. Moore requested a few days of medical leave so that she could have a pacemaker inserted um, so that her condition would be more stable and she wouldn't need to wear the life vest. Not long after that, then Ms. Kennedy sought to remove Ms. Moore from the department. Specifically, Kennedy moved to eliminate Ms. Moore's position altogether, noting that it wasn't necessary any longer. And uh, I believe an important point to note there is that there was another person that held the same position as Ms. Moore, uh, who was a, a junior employee, but that junior employee who held the same role was kept on while Moore was, was terminated. As a result, Ms. Moore turns around and files a disability discrimination claim based um, largely out of the, the Fair Employment and Housing Act. And the case reaches trial court, but it was um, adversely ruled against the plaintiff at the the summary judgment stage, based partially on the the McDonnell-Douglas three-step test that tends to be applied in cases like this. Could you explain to me what exactly the McDonnell-Douglas three-step test is? So it's interesting because the McDonnell-Douglas test as it exists today 
is a little different from how the McDonald Douglas test was designed. Originally, it was intended to make it easier for plaintiffs to prove discrimination cases when parties started litigating employment discrimination cases in the aftermath of Title VII. Uh, there was uh, objections from the defense bar that people didn't have direct evidence. And so the U.S. Supreme Court designed a scheme to make it easier to show discrimination through circumstantial evidence, knowing that plaintiffs very rarely had the smoking gun evidence that the defense bar was seemingly requiring at the time. So they came up with a tripartite test where a worker needs to show a prima facie case, that they belong to a protected class, and that they suffered some type of discriminatory action. The employer then needs to articulate a legitimate non-discriminatory reason, and then the burden shifts back to the plaintiff to show that that uh, so-called reason was nothing but a pretext for unlawful discrimination. Now that test is used almost as a gatekeeper that employees need to satisfy the McDonnell-Douglas fan standards as a condition of bringing their Fair Employment and Housing Act case or case under Title VII. So now it's used to weed out bad cases, but but it was originally designed to make it easier to prove discrimination. Okay, now I believe the trial court at the summary judgment stage decided that Ms. Moore had not carried her burden on the third part of that test. She hadn't shown that the reasons given were protectural. I believe the reasons given were that simply there wasn't enough work to merit her position any longer. Right. It was a two-part thing. It was, we needed to do a reorganization, and we chose her as the, the target of that reorganization. That is, that her job could not survive. Okay. And so it's, it's, you have a macro analysis and a micro analysis. Sure. Is there really a bona fide need for a reorganization? And how did they make the personnel decisions about people who were being affected by reorgs versus not affected? Now, getting into that, both of those questions are obviously inherently very factually based, which seems to me to make it make them difficult to resolve at the summary judgment stage. Do cases like this tend not then to be resolved at this stage of litigation? Um, I think the decision is a very strong message to trial judges to not decide them at the summary judgment stage. There are lots depends, well, I'm going to say a lot depends on the individual trial judge. Some judges will routinely grant summary judgment in employment cases, and other judges will routinely deny them. My own experience on the L.A. Superior Court was if there was some type of institutional bias one way or the other, it probably was to deny summary judgment. Very few judges were granting summary judgment in employment discrimination cases based upon motive as a matter of course. Sure. So as you allude to, the appellate court here reverses and remands, saying that there is a triable issue as to whether these stated reasons were in fact pretextual and whether there is in fact a case of disability discrimination going on here at UCSD. It does seem to me like the impact of this ruling could be somewhat broad because the facts as laid out, they seem to sort of be a very typical garden variety employment discrimination case. So would you say that the, the impact of this ruling could be cited by many, many similar type cases going forward? Uh, you're going to see this case citation showing up in virtually every single plaintiff's opposition to a motion to summary judgment. So it is going to be widely cited, but I don't know that it changes the law in any real matter. It's just another reminder to the trial judges about how one can go about showing pretext. Is it a reminder as well for employers um, or employers' counsel to pay attention to the, the ways in which their, their supervisors are treating employees? Um, is this an important ruling for, for those folks to have in mind as well? Well, I think in, most employment defense counsel already does what that opinion Prescribes. That is, if a council saw an employer that was deviating from its own internal policies and procedures in the course of a layoff, they will, in all likelihood, be advising the employers of their risk in going forward with their decision. Again, it doesn't mean that it is discriminatory to violate your 
policies and procedures, but what this opinion highlights for trial courts is that juries may, if they choose to, incur discriminatory animus from the fact that an employer deviated from its own policies and procedures. So it increases the risk level, but the employer may still decide to bring their motion for summary judgment anyway, because sometimes that's the Hail Mary of the defense. It's sometimes they're granted. Yeah, as this was the case here. Do you do you have any guess on how you might see this case playing out now that it's kicked back down to the trial court? Again, a lot of these cases um, have the primary source of damage in terms of the the oomph of the, the dollars are in attorney's fees. I don't know enough about this case to know what that is, but given the attorney's fees exposure after an appeal, there is going to be a strong incentive to settle. Sure. The employer's risk of loss will be um, magnified by the attorney's fees. And, and so my guess is this case will likely head towards a mediated resolution, but it may have to be tried. Well, I think we'll leave it there and, and see how it does come out. And I'm sure plenty of employment lawyers are, are now happy to, to add this to their, their litigation quivers. Former LA Superior Judge Jeffrey Winnico, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Thanks again. Once more, that was former L.A. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Winnico chatting about Moore versus the Regents of the University of California. Finally, let's move on to my conversation with David Gamble about the Ninth Circuit oral arguments in the case against the L.A. Sheriff's Department's deputies. All right, we're welcoming in now David Gamble, an attorney with Garagos and Garagos, to chat about the case that heard oral arguments before the Ninth Circuit, U.S. First Gerard Smith et al. Mr. Gamble, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. I'll spend a bit of time first, I guess, on the underlying facts of this case because they're they're pretty interesting. And the setup here is there's an inmate in the, the L.A. County Men's Central Jail, correct, who becomes an informant for an FBI investigation. That investigation pertained to potential civil rights abuses in the jail, corruption activities. But then at some point, the L.A. Sheriff's Department, which runs that jail, becomes aware that this inmate is an informant. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah, what uh, what happens then? Well, to me, the most amazing part of this story has always been that they begin to move the informant within the jail system, attempting to hide him from his FBI handlers. So the moment you figure out you've got an informant in your jail, you would think the jig is up, that, you know, at that point, whatever you've done, whatever you're responsible for, is going to come to the surface and you're going to be responsible. You're going to be held responsible for it. And instead they start moving this informant around and why that always, it always just amused me and seems so amazing is what's your end game if that's how you react. And so that to me has always been just the best part and just the, it shows the level of just absurdity in the mindset of, Baca and Tanaka um, believing that they could get away with that. Sure, former uh, Sheriff Lee Baca. Uh, now, in addition to just sort of moving him around from place to place, keeping an eye on this inmate, which I believe at trial and I think still on appeal, the appellant's attorneys have said was for his own safety because you know he was known as an informant, so potentially a corrupt deputy would want to you know just off him at some point and make it look like an accident. Uh, but they did things in addition to just moving around, like um, removing his physical file from the sheriff's department database or from the, the file cabinet there and, and creating yeah. false entries when he'd be rebooked into new places under, under new names. So he really was sort of disappearing from, from the records altogether. Yes. And yeah, it wasn't just the physical hiding, but the, the, the paper trail was either removed or obscured in a way that there was no way you were going to be able to figure out where this guy was. And they also, you know, they also had officers that went out and and tried to intimidate the handlers or the investigators from the FBI. So it really, it was an amazing, the, the idea of the abuse that was going on is in and of itself such a big, big story. But the way these deputies tried to cover it up once they knew they were caught 
is is really what makes it just so sensational of a story. And obviously the cover-up, as the indictment alleged it was, and as the district court jury found didn't succeed, I believe several deputies were, were indicted and tried and, and found guilty. And now that case is, is up on appeal before the Ninth Circuit. And so we can go ahead and get to the, the case which heard all our arguments this week. I believe principal contention by the original defendants, now the appellants, is that, you know, hey, we were deputy sheriffs or sheriff's deputies. We were following orders that we believed to be lawful. We thought we were, these orders were just meant to keep this inmate protected uh, by moving them around. So our level of culpability is just not high enough to uh, be found guilty of these charges of conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Is that the the gist of the appellant's contentions? Yeah, it's you know it's the classic Nuremberg defense, right? I was just following orders, and therefore I'm not responsible for anything I did. Now the government's attorney at the oral argument stated uh, pretty forcefully that such a defense is just not a viable defense for for these charges is is she correct there i think i believe so i think that anytime you're dealing with somebody and their excuse or their defense is well i was just doing what i was told and when it's very clear in this if they had just moved them once or they had just done you know one thing you could argue well i didn't know what that one thing really meant in the grand scheme but these deputies were repeatedly making these moves so it becomes hard to believe that you didn't have some knowledge of what it was you were doing. And so then you ask yourself, should someone who's just following orders be held responsible for what they do? And you know, I, would, I would agree. I think most of civilization would agree that the answer is yes, you should be held responsible. And the more sophisticated of a person you're dealing with, I think the more comfortable you should be with holding those people responsible and just put it simpler, if you're an adult and you manage to become a deputy, then it's, on the grand scheme of things, you're a fairly sophisticated human being. That's somebody that we should feel comfortable holding responsible for the things he does, even when he says, well, I was just following orders. I believe that Judge Clifton, during the oral arguments, pushed back a little bit against that that argument and said sort of there are sort of two states of mind painted in in this litigation. Um, One is a a deputy following orders and believing those orders to potentially be lawful. And then the person found guilty of obstruction of justice, obviously, is is believed to have a corrupt mindset. And he says those those two mindsets are are sort of mutually exclusive, that you, you can't follow orders you believe to be lawful and also have a corrupt frame of mind. So is the, the argument that they should have, should have known that the orders were not lawful, like you say, they were sophisticated enough to get what was going on? Yeah, because I would agree with the judge. If, if you truly believe the order you're carrying out to be lawful, and the order on its face, you know, doesn't offend anyone's conscience, you know, obviously, when you use the phrase Nuremberg defense, it brings to mind a atrocities where, you know, moving a file from one place to another does not, you know, on its face is not an atrocity that you're committing. So if you truly believe that what you're doing is lawful, then I I agree. I don't, I think that then you're innocent of any of these crimes, but I think it is a, you know, they were sophisticated enough that they knew what they were doing. And I think that that's what the jury decided in the end, not simply, it's not a, um, strict liability crime, they have to have that intent of wrongdoing. And I think the jury didn't believe the idea that we, you know, we were ignorant, we didn't know what we were doing, and we were just pawns in, you know, Baca's game. I believe one of the appellate's attorneys made the argument that effective police work requires quick action and, and orders that are, you know, are followed with you know, some speed and some efficiency. And that requiring deputies to, to take a second to think, okay, is this order actually lawful? Do I do I want to spend some time and figure out what exactly is going on? Might That might deter the efficiency of police forces. What what uh, what do you make of that argument? I don't make much of that argument. I think that we want our police officers, whether they are on the street or they are in the jails, we want them to think. Stop and think. Um, take a half a second to think. And, you know, I believe that officers often have to react to situations no one could ever predict. And in those moments, they don't have the luxury of stopping and thinking. But 
this would not even begin to fall under that spectrum. A order from your superior to move one person from one place to another or to remove files or to use fake names, those are the type of things that you absolutely, we want our officers to stop and think, is, is this right? Is this okay? And if it's not, what do I do? Or if I do it and I later figure out that it was wrong, who do I bring that to the attention to? Do you know, uh, are the appellants still contending that, hey, all of this was done just for the inmates' protection? I, I suppose that's still their theory. I think, to me, more than anything, they've got this idea that really what they're, the biggest thing they have on the appeal is the dismissal of that juror because, you know, it sounds like she was going to possibly be the holdout and, and prevent the conviction. And to me, that's their best. You know, I think that they'll forever claim they'll forever claim that this was all for his best interest or that they didn't know what was going on. I think that Baca pleading, these guys being found guilty, the undersheriff being found guilty, I think that shows you that that was a, a, a theory that didn't carry a lot of water. But I think on the appeal, more than the, the underlying legitimacy of their defense, I think they're just saying that they didn't get a fair trial. Right. As you said, yeah, former Sheriff Baca had pled out, so he's not a part of this appeal. You mentioned the juror there. <clears throat> let's let's get to that for a second. There was a fair bit made of the juror being dismissed. I think it was after multiple days of deliberation. Is that correct? So multiple appellants' attorneys mentioned that um, that does seem to be a big a big issue on appeal. What exactly is their argument that what in their mind was wrong with the juror being dismissed? Well, I think it's one. There was no. It wasn't necessary to remove the juror. Um, it sounds as if she was having a rough, rough go of it in the jury room and just her personality type was one that did not, you know, she did not hold up well being uh, a minority voice in a room full of people that thought opposite of her. She brought that to the court's attention, but after speaking with her, it sounded like she was going to be able to continue. And despite that, decision that it would be best to remove her. And that's problematic because you've got 12 people that have heard the evidence. And when it's been, the deliberation's been going on for days and the concern is, you know, I'm the minority voice in that jury room and I'm having a hard time dealing with that. I mean, the, the system, the whole justice system really depends on the idea that 12 people will make up their own mind, that they will discuss it with one another, that they will review the evidence, that they will benefit from the interactions with the other jurors, but that 12 people will decide that these guys are guilty. And to remove the one person who seems to be hanging that up definitely strikes strikes me as problematic. Sure. Do you know, out of curiosity, what... Uh... What became of the FBI investigation that the inmate was an informant for? Um, did that did that continue? Were any uh, charges brought as a result of, of that? It seems like, oh, gosh, uh, I want to I say there was, but the the people that were responsible, I, you know, I think for a lot of that abuse were obviously the people that are now standing trial for the or were standing trial for the obstruction. Um, if you are, if you haven't, if you're not responsible for abuse going on and you find out there's an FBI informant in custody, you don't have a reason to cover anything up. You know, you may not like that or you may let some, you know, let your superiors know, hey, there's an FBI informant in here and does anyone know why? But if you haven't done anything wrong, there's no reason to really cover cover any tracks. So I think that the the actors that that investigation would have gotten at were ultimately held responsible in these charges. Sure. I know that you handle some excessive force cases um, with your firm. Uh, have you handled any in relation to, to prisoners or, or folks in, in the jails? I personally haven't in my time here. I know that we've had a couple cases where we do. It's something that you 
it's something you hear alleged a lot. You know, a lot of people that are in custody claim that they've been, you know, assaulted or, or excessively beaten. And but it's a very hard thing to prove. It's a very hard thing to corroborate because, you know, nobody knows. Um, the, the people committing the crimes know exactly where they're being recorded and where they're not being recorded. So you rarely have any corroboration. Anybody that would act as a witness is either in custody and difficult to get to to interview to see if they would support someone's claim. And even if they do support the claim, you have a problem that now you're, you know, your witnesses are all people that are in custody. So they just, they're not found to be credible by juries. So they're extremely difficult cases to not only pursue, just to get to a trial, but then at trial, they're extremely difficult to win unless you stumble upon, you know, video footage or audio recording to somehow capture and corroborate what an individual is saying. Yeah, it might be tough for some folks to find those witnesses credible. As we know from this case, it might be tough to find those folks just just generally, just to find them. Um, anyway, maybe one last one. Um, how how do you see this case coming down out of the, the Ninth Circuit, if you, you could venture your best guess? I would say there's a very real possibility they'd get another trial from that dismissed juror. I think that, you know, the, the judges are going to, I think, try to do everything they can to uphold the verdict. I think that's usually the... Um, the point of view is if they, if they think the result is correct, they're going to do everything they can to, to deny the appeal. I think that uh, appellate courts often will work in reverse, um, meaning before addressing illegal arguments, there's this underlying idea of, you know, did, did they get it right? Are these guys guilty of this crime? And consciously or subconsciously, I think that affects then the legal analysis that gets done. So it, to me, from what I've reviewed and what I've read, it sounds like there's a lot of reason to believe that the outcome was correct, that these guys were found guilty. But that issue of, a, of at least one of the 12 people seem to not agree with that verdict is a pretty big deal, right? Because sure. that, that, is, that is a huge part of our justice system is the right to jury, 12 jurors, and you know, the prosecution nor the court gets to just, after a couple days, select the majority that seems to be going one way and be done with the case. So it really is problematic. And I think that that will get the most scrutiny. And if it is overturned, I think that's the reason why. And I would tend to agree with it. Okay. Well, we'll see where the panel ends up on that one in the next few weeks. In this case, uh, U.S. First Gerard Smith et al., Mr. David Gamble of the firm Garagos. And Garagos, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was a pleasure. With that, our program for July 8th, 2016, is complete. I'd like to take this opportunity once more to tender sincere gratitude to all three of my guests, Professor Jeffrey Fisher from Stanford Law School, former L.A. Superior Court Judge Jeffrey Winnico, and David Gamel of Garagos and Garagos. I'd like to also thank you, our listeners, and I would also like to extend a special thanks to a few other folks this week who helped a bunch with the production of this podcast, Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, and our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>